Are we recording? Get the thumbs up. What is up, freaks? Joy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of TFTC. May trigger some of you guys, but we, we had a doctor on to talk about COVID treatments, his thoughts on vaccines. Doc Woods, towards the end of his career, 75 years old, has been treating patients in Wyoming for 43 years, almost half a century. And he has a perspective on on what's been going on and uh, the, the treatments that have been artificially prevented from getting to, to patients. I'll let you guys listen to it. We just had an almost two-hour conversation. It's brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I'm looking at some Unchained employees right now through the glass windows here at the Bitcoin Commons at the TFTC studio. I see Justin Moon. He's not part of Unchained, but I can just see it beautiful mullet. Uh, Unchained's here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. They're here to bring you financial services. They're here for Bitcoiners. Make sure that you're you're secure and that you have access to financial products. They have a white glove concierge service for their vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig custodial collaborative custody. Not custodial. It's collaborative custody. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one key. You always have control of your sats, if you have those two keys, if you're ever in a pinch, though, you only have access to one key. Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. Uh, this may be daunting for some of you guys, you guys, but if you have your coins on in exchange, that's a single point of failure. If you have them just sitting in a single sig wallet, it's a single point of failure. The exchange can get rug pulled. It can tell you, hey, actually, the government said you can't take your sats anymore. Um, so, so we're not gonna send them to the, the wallet that you like. Uh, single SIG wallet, you lose your wallet, you lose the backup, you're shit out of luck. Lost your coins. Try to prevent that. Collaborative custody with Unchained. The White Glove Concierge Service is going to take you from zero to having a multi-SIG vault set up. You're going to have multiple video conference calls with you. They're going to get you hardware wallets, help you get those set up. And then you're going to set up your vault and they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into the vault. If you tell them that TFTC sent you you're going to get $50 off that package. Go check out everything they have going on at Unchained from their loan desk, their IRA product, the vault, their blog at unchained.com. This trip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Team behind Slush Bowl. Team behind Brains OS Plus firmware. They're doing incredible things. The pool side, they've been around since 2010. Longest standing Bitcoin mining pool. They've weathered many storms. They've helped mine more than 1.3 million Bitcoins since they launched. They stay true to Bitcoin. Brains OS Plus firmware. That allows you to download firmware onto your ASIC, which allows you to produce more hashes with that ASIC, which then allows you to produce more sats with that ASIC, okay? If you're running an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're leaving sats on the table. You're being dumb. Don't be dumb. Download Brains if it's available for you. You also have Brains, Brains, insights.brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com, insights.brains.com is a one-stop shop for all the data you need about the mining industry at any given point in time. It's got hash rate data, difficulty data, hash price data, mining pool data, profitability of individual machine models. It's a beautiful site. 
Daniel Frums. Thank God he he had a hectic time during during the last halving and just had a bunch of tabs open. It was like, all right, I need to consolidate this. He and the Brains team consolidated it into insights.brains.com. They're also having a mining conference June 15th, 16th that week in Prague in the Czech Republic. We are an official media partner of that conference specifically. Go to the mining conference. I'm actually, I have my laptop on me right now. I'm going to make sure that this is the correct website, theminingconference.com. Where does it take me? Where does it take me? It's been the wrong. It's been the wrong. I've been sending you guys to the wrong. This, this website doesn't exist. <laughs> How come miningconference.com? Let me check. Nope, that one doesn't work. Let me get a brains. I'm actually shocked the brains guys haven't reached out to me. We're going to find BMC 2022. Oh, it doesn't even have its... It doesn't even have its own landing page. It's brains.com slash Bitcoin dash mining dash conference dash 2022. If you go to brains.com, it's uh, it's up there. The Bitcoin Mining Conference 2022. Main event June 15th. Side events 14th, 16th. Sorry for sending you freaks to a website that doesn't exist for like the last three weeks. Go to brains.com. B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Brains. This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. We're here to bring you a non-custodial, no KYC, no AML lending platform. It too leverages Bitcoin native multi-sig properties. What you do is you put your Bitcoin up. If you're in a pinch, you want liquidity, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, and you're willing to use stable coins, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a uh, two or three multi-sig escrow. You get stable coins in return. You go to lend.hodlhodl. You'll find this marketplace of people that are looking <clears throat> to lend out there stable coins to get yield on them and you, you, they'll, they'll give you rates like, hey, here's the interest I'm looking for. You can negotiate. Say, hey, let me bring that down a little bit. Like, here, here's my collateral. You put your Bitcoin up as collateral. You get stable coins as long as you're paying that loan back, the principal plus the interest. You are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. And that's the beauty of uh, Bitcoin leveraging uh, the native multi-sig or excuse me, hodl hodl leveraging uh, the native multi-sig properties of that exists in Bitcoin. Excuse me. I have people in the comments walking in. They're distracting me a little bit. Uh, you don't have control in this setup of the Bitcoin. However, since you do hold one of the keys, uh, you have visibility into the escrow account so that you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated re and you have certainty that if you're paying that loan back plus the interest, you're going to be getting your sats back at the end of the day. Go check all this out at lend.hodlhodl.com. And Eastern Europe Conference is hot as well. The Baltic Honey Badger Conference will be back this year. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you freaks that, but whatever. I just did. Last but not least, talking about conferences, we got one coming up here in South Beach, Miami, April 6th to 9th. Nice. The Bitcoin 2022 conference. It's going to be the biggest conference ever. World's Fair, Chicago, 19. 08, whenever that was. It's going to look like... What's it going to look like, Car? What's the world... The 1908 World's Fair. I don't even know if that's the year. In, in Chicago. That's going to look like... Hmm. Hmm. That's going to look like... That's going to look like a, like a couple of uh, SPCA people uh, 
on the corner, like trying to annoy you. Like, hey, come talk to me. It's like, no, that's the World's Fair is going to look like that compared to Bitcoin 2022. April 6th to 9th in Miami, South Beach, Miami. It's at the South Beach Convention Center. Okay, so it's the biggest fucking thing that's ever happened in the existence of conferences. Day one, the six. <coughs> Such a big specter. I can't even talk right. I gotta drink some water. The six is industry day. If you're looking to get, if you're in the industry, if you're looking to climb up the industry, go to, you gotta go to industry day. You're gonna be bumping elbows with some heavy hitters. Some hitters. The seventh and eighth and their general conference days. It'll be CEOs, presidents, President Bikaley's coming. He's uh, he's an avid canoeing. He's, he's got an avid canoeing hobby. And he's just going to talk about canoeing on stage. And they've got beautiful lakes in El Salvador. President Bukele likes to, to pull his canoe out quite often and enjoy the scenes. And there's many intricacies that go into the, the hobby of canoeing. And President Bukele is going to take the stage at Bitcoin 2022 and really dive into the intricacies that, that exist when, when you're canoeing. So you're not going to want to miss that. Michael Saylor is going to be there as well. Jack Maller is going to be there. <laughs> this fucking asshole named Marty Bent might be there as well. I hope not. I really hope not. Um, what else is going on? Richard Hart is in my, is in my menchies. Fuck Richard Hart. Hopefully he's not at Bitcoin 2022. If he is, you should call him out for being an accomplice to murder in Guatemala. Kidding. Hearsay. But word is on the street. Bitcoin 2022, day four, music festival on the 9th. Logic, Dead Mouse, Neil Young, and Joni Smith are going to be there. Um, but they're not actually like a part of the festival. They're going to be on the corner with the SPCA people um, begging for money because they kicked themselves off Spotify uh, in reaction to Joe Rogan. Having a very similar conversation to the one that we just had with, with Doc Woods. So if you haven't bought your tickets to Bitcoin 2022 yet, go to b.tc slash conference and use the code TFTC to get 10% off your tickets. Enjoy it, freaks. Thank you. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. So like running a, a DNS company these days. It's uh, never been boring. I mean, we've been doing this for 23 years. We started in 98. And I've always said DNS policy attracts all the crazies, I guess myself included. And uh, it's always something. But these days, it's kind of getting a little, a little more heated up with cancel culture and deplatforming being just par for the course these days. Yeah, I mean, DNS specifically is always an interesting topic because yeah. that's that's what many would consider to be a a weak point in the the internet stack and be, actually being able to become 
uncancelable, um, yeah. unassailable as the, uh, the book that you wrote, which tries to teach you how to, how to prevent yourself from being canceled. Um, so is DNS a weak point? In yeah, your absolutely. It's, it's the dial tone of the internet. And, um, it was actually the Bitcoin movement that proved me wrong on one of my core assumptions, because before Bitcoin came along, everyone always used to say, we need a P2P DNS, right? Whenever ICANN or VeriSign or someone did something egregious, people would say, we need a peer-to-peer DNS infrastructure. And I would always chime in and say, that's all very well and good, but it's impossible because DNS is an inverted tree by definition. You can't have a peer-to-peer infrastructure without name collisions. And then Bitcoin came along and it didn't address DNS head on, but then there were forks like Namecoin. And even Mm -hmm. now things like uh, Handshake and Ethereum name service, which we've been involved in, which, you know, just took that blockchain ledger uh, architecture and said, well, hey, look, you don't need an inverted tree root. You can have an immutable ledger instead signed cryptographically. And uh, that I think that has changed the game for DNS, but it hasn't really become apparent yet. But it will, especially now because the incentive structures have changed drastically. Why do you think it will become more apparent in time? Because you are really at the mercy of big tech in a lot of cases. And um, people seem to think that it's okay to attack your core infrastructure. And there are fewer and fewer companies who are willing to put a flag in the ground and defend your, your right just to be online and say things that people disagree with. So the incentives are such that uh, people building out uh you know, journalism outlets or just uh, have something to say, but don't want to be subject to attack are just going to start looking at these alternatives. And, you know, I look at the statements like ICANN, they're this regulatory body that oversees the, the namespace, the, the TLDs, like the dot and .com and .us and .ca. They've put out statements about things like decentralized naming systems, and they're kind of in denial, it sounds a little detached from reality. But what I do is, is I look at, let's say, the adoption curve of uh, all things crypto, all things blockchain, right? like number of active addresses, number of active uh, transactions. But when I get specific on, on naming enabled things, you look at the number of Web3 enabled devices, and it's just going up exponentially. So everyone who's got MetaMask or something like that plugged into their web browser, well, suddenly that's not just about sending tokens around the internet. You can actually see the whole Ethereum name service uh, ecosystem of naming. And there's, and there's more to that as well. There's, there's the handshake, there's unstoppable. And so this is all kind of happening almost as a side effect of the decentral revolution, that people are doing this to get a non-state money or to move into non-state controlled currencies. But this byproduct of it is that they're getting visibility into decentralized namespaces. And I think it's getting more traction now because it's not that's not the core motivator. It's just a, a side effect that will take on a life of its own. And what I mean by that Back about 
20 years ago, there was other initiatives like new.net. They tried to have all of these, these new TLDs that weren't visible to the rest of the world. And you had to download a, a browser plugin and plug it into your browser. And that's how you had to get it to work. And it was just too high of a, of a barrier to entry for just the average person to do this, just to see these namespaces where nobody was there. But what's changed now is there's all of this adaptation and migration and movement into this decentralized ecosystem already. You're not, people aren't being um, incited or incentivized to download these plugins just to get visibility into these new namespaces. They're realizing they already have this visibility because they had already been incentivized to add these plugins and Web3 capabilities to their devices and to do other things. And it's like, oh, hey, I can see dot crypto domains now. I can see, you know, all of these other, uh, you know, dot forever, dot ETH. And, and it's just all sort of like a snowball gathering momentum. <clears throat> With the, the new sort of decentralized DNS ecosystems popping up, are there any pain points, scaling issues you see with those? Because that's like, the one thing thinking of like Ethereum specifically. Like, is, yeah, is that Ethereum's scalable? got a gas problem. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off, but. It's got a gas problem, yeah. Does it also have like a scalability problem? It'll actually be decentralized in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always that debate of how decentralized is Ethereum really, but I think I they invited me out to their working group back in 2017 out in London, mm -hmm. England, and I went out there. And what I realized when I got there was that um, all of these roadblocks aside. There's real momentum here. It's really happening. And that momentum is just getting stronger and stronger. So, uh, yeah, there's scaling issues. Yeah, there's gas fee issues. Uh, but I just, you know, I think they'll get around it. I think there's going to be others. There's Tezos has a naming system now. And uh, um, Bitcoin, I mean, there's... I don't know if there's anything happening quite like it in Bitcoin yet. I mean, I've actually been keeping half an eye out on it for, for years since I got involved in Bitcoin and even was working on some experimental initiatives in it, but nothing's really um, that I've seen has really asserted itself yet. Yeah. No, it was funny. The, uh, <laughs> it was the other week with ENS specifically, they had their lead developer canceled, um, which is... that bothered me a lot that really bothered right. me um you know and i i wrote a post in the ens dow that said look um you know i've been fighting cancel culture and deplatforming for my entire life uh i think this is a bad move i think it sets a bad precedent and it will it will hurt the dow more than it won't and i know brantley i've dealt with brantley he helped us with our dot um with our dot ENS implementation. And, uh, you know, not, he, he, he was canceled on a tweet that he put out that before ENS even existed. And yeah, it was in 2016, I believe. 2015, I thought. And so it just really, there's this idea that everyone you interact with on this planet must have the same moral and ideological compass as you 
or not only should you not deal with them, that person should have their life destroyed. And I just, like, I can't agree with that. I mean, people have the right to be wrong. They have the right to disagree. They have the right to, you know, say what they're going to say and learn from their mistakes or double down on them. It's not really our business, but now I'm probably going to get canceled. Thanks. We're all going to get canceled. No, it's, it was uh, it was funny reading the postmortem of that. It seems like the dude who led the charge against him was saying like, he was like a hardcore Christian as well, and he's just mm-hmm. trying to get rich. And once the uh, once the uh, the stake in the Dow, once a larger stake in the Dow, and just used cancel culture to to get it. The person who started the cancel process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was more of a social engineering experiment, or not experiment. Actually, it was successful uh, an attack via social engineering to to get him out and take over his votes. It was a very fascinating um, story of how these these DAOs can be corrupted and attacked at the social layer, um, which is Ethereum's long running problem. In my opinion, is that the social layer is not strong at all, and it allows things to be changed on a dime and probably bad decisions uh, to, to be led into the, the protocol. But um, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a fascinating spot, but these are important problems to solve. I don't want to focus too much on Ethereum, but again, going back to something you mentioned, you have been fighting cancel culture for quite some time now. And, I mean, EasyDNS has been around for 28 years, you said? 23, 1998. 23, before. 1998. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two co-founders, and I bought them out like in 2004 or something like that. <clears throat> and so, was cancel culture something you s- saw pretty coming pretty early on? Because it's it's not something that's been really prevalent until what, like six, seven years ago, well, maybe. Yeah, I would say what um, what made it front and center in our <laughs> career or our trajectory was WikiLeaks 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got pulled into that one literally by accident because uh, they got canceled by, you know, extrajudicial means by U.S. politicians. And they leaned on one of our competitors to take them down. And they did. And the competitor was named very similarly to us. They don't exist. Well, so it was a company called EveryDNS. They were on EveryDNS. Every DNS got bought by Dynect. Dynect has since been bought by Oracle. But somewhere, somebody typed, we've been canceled by Easy DNS. They weren't even a customer with us. It was just a mistake. But that went around the world faster than anyone could shake their head. It was in the New York Times. It was in the Guardian UK. It was in the Financial Post. They were all saying the same thing. And this is also where my um, cynicism for journalism came from as well, because they were all regurgitating an incorrect talking point from Twitter saying EasyDNS canceled WikiLeaks. So we had the ire of the world on us. Like they were just, you know, it was unbelievable. And we were trying to get in front of it to say, they're not even a customer here. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. And then what happened, so that was a whole battle unto itself. Um, Gawker 
wrote a hit piece on us or threatened to write a hit piece on us because we wanted them to issue a correction. They were saying anyway. And then at the end of it, someone came to us and said, well, look, would you take WikiLeaks on as a client to get them back online? And we said, of course we will, right? Of course they should be back <laughs> online. So we brought in, uh, you know, we got WikiLeaks.nl, WikiLeaks.ch, and then the .org domain kind of got trapped in limbo, so it never made it on, but we got their mirrors back up. And uh, that was even a whole other maelstrom. And for a brief period there, it was, it was intense. Um, and it was the shot heard around the world. And after that, like, I couldn't believe, A, what was happening to WikiLeaks. Like, I remember Senator Lieberman, if you remember him, going on national TV, praising companies like PayPal and uh, MasterCard for, you know, he actually said breaking their contracts with WikiLeaks. So behavior that should have gotten you sued in a court of law, here's a politician praising you for breaking your legally binding contracts. And I just found that like beyond the pale. And then the second part of it, of course, was the journalistic response because it was just like incompetence compounded with just, just, Which I, I have no words. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so. disgusting what they've done to Julian and WikiLeaks. Yes. That's actually something something I wrote in the uh, newsletter yesterday. It's very fascinating. Um, there's something about timing with all this. And you've wrote a piece on it, like Bitcoin's timing of its launch uh-huh. is particularly beautiful. We'll get into that. But I, I think what we're finding out in the last two weeks with what's going on in Canada specifically, even though WikiLeaks had MasterCard, PayPal, Visa cut them off, People thought you guys cut them off, but you didn't. You actually wound up taking them on as a client. Props to that. Uh, and that they turned to Bitcoin as well. Um, and yeah. that was a big part of Bitcoin's early history. Obviously, you know, the famous Satoshi email where please don't kick the hornet's nest. Um, we'll, have, we'll have uh, everybody on our backs. It's not exactly what he said. Um, and you fast forward, the Silk Road happened between now and then. You've had other instances of pretty high caliber stories proving Bitcoin's use case, but there's something about Justin Trudeau using the Emergencies Act to freeze the the bank accounts of protesters that has really woken up a large number of people in who many would consider normies to the value prop of Bitcoin. I think it was proven with WikiLeaks, it was proven with the Silk Road, but um, maybe the timing is just perfect. Bitcoin's a big enough of a brand name that now when Justin Trudeau, the, the Prime Minister of Canada, is freezing banks account, freezing bank accounts uh, unilaterally on a whim with no due process, uh, it seems yeah. like this, for some reason or another, is the, the aha moment for, for millions across the world. Don't forget Cyprus. Like, I, I still think, mm-hmm. so I, I, 2013 was when I first got aware, became aware of Bitcoin. And that's when EasyDNS started accepting it as a payment method. And that's when Cyprus happened. And in my mind, it, this was always the core driver for me in believing in Bitcoin more than number go up, was that I think Cyprus was what broke Bitcoin into the public awareness more than it was at the time. It was the first real kind of explosion out there. And um, what Trudeau's done is Cyprus on steroids. Okay. 
Um, it was just now today the word is circulating that um, the RCMP is working with banks to unfreeze all of the accounts frozen. And there's all kinds of subtext around why. But I think personally, my guess is the lawsuits started ro rolling in. Like it's one thing for the deputy prime minister to go on TV and say, we're going to freeze these bank accounts. We're going to indemnify the banks from liability and you don't need a court order. It's one thing to say that now. Okay. I would imagine, I mean, if my bank account was one of the bank accounts that was frozen, I would have my lawyers like filing in superior court the next business day saying, that's all very interesting. Now let's put this to a legal test. But I don't know if that's what's happening, but I hope there's some legal tests to it. And, uh, but be that as it may, the damage has been, well, either the damage has been done or the victory has been achieved, whichever way you want to look at it. I mean, one of my normie neighbors rolled by me the other day, right out here, rolled down the window of his Tesla and he yelled, hey, Mark, I got to get me some Bitcoin now, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody is like, I got to get Bitcoin now. And everyone is saying, we've got to get our Bitcoin out of the exchanges and into self-custodied wallets. And even the authorities here are even panicking about that. Like they've set off this chain reaction. I don't even know what they were thinking, but it's that age old thing with politicians. They don't think about trade-offs or incentives or second order effects. Well, let's get into that. Like we, and I saw you responded to a tweet I posted the other day. Uh, they're, they're really fucking up their great reset. And you think, yeah. you think they're going too fast too soon. And I guess, I guess I think that was a probably a big part of it, right? Is like the trucker convoy is really putting the pressure on Trudeau, and he came down, tried to come down with an iron fist, thinking people would be docile, and the exact opposite happened. Um, yeah, I mean, all through this pandemic, I mean, I really had to sit down and sort of introspect on: Do I really believe there's an all? powerful global cabal that's driving this in like a top-down conspiracy. I've come to the conclusion just through, I don't know, I, I, I started to think that it's more, there's no conspiracy, there is, um, there's dynamics and there's incentives. And so what happened with Trudeau is, um, I mean, I think when the pandemic hit, I think the Davos crew and the WEF people, the World Economic Forum people just saw this as an aha moment. Like, all right, let's, it's go time. Let's, let's go. And they did push it too hard. They did push too much too soon because the kind of world that these sort of institutional, centralized politicians, technocrats really want, they do want that China-style social credit system, right, where, where everything is controlled and regimented. And they did, you know, I think my reply to you is that they, they pulled like 20 years of creeping totalitarianism forward into 18 months. And what Trudeau really did was he just hammered it, completely mishandled it. And he just, and, and he put himself in this awkward position where he couldn't back down because if he backed down, it would look like the truckers won. At the end of the day, I think the truckers did win. They, they set off a global conversation about this that's still ongoing and still going on around the world and is much more intensified here in Canada. Yeah, certainly. 
said it off. And I go back and forth. Is it incompetence? Is it hubris? Is it pure incentives? But then you see, sorry, I've got helicopters going on overhead. Um, but then you see like a video. I'm sure you've seen that video of Klaus Schwab going around um, from 2017 yeah. when he was on a panel and he was bragging about having young World Economic Forum, young global leaders infiltrating the Canadian parliament and Trudeau's cabinet specifically. And then you had yeah. somebody, some PM, come to the floor last week, and you know, I guess he was zooming in, and he was trying to uh, ask a question on behalf of one of his constituents who watched that video. I was like, I think we should be asking questions on the floor about what what is the extent of the influence and the uh, the immersion of the World Economic Forum in our politics. Are they influencing us from within this this unelected? Uh, I don't even know what to call this an unelected organization that that seems to like to project influence on the rest of the world via policy recommendations that a lot of the time get implemented um, in many parts of the world. Yeah, and this is this is is this is an age old dynamic, right? I mean, used to have the Bilderbergers were the you know the boogeyman of the day or the trilaterals, and I don't mean boogeyman in a dismissive sense. I just mean in um, extra national sort of networks of people who cast undue influence, right? Uh, how much influence do they have in, in the best of times or in the worst of times? And I think what happened with this pandemic was that a huge vacuum opened up and the World Economic Forum was able to just rush into that vacuum and uh, so much so that they inhaled so much oxygen out of the space, like behind the scenes, that uh, it, it can almost be indistinguishable from a global cabal that controls everything, right? Uh, it, you know, they, when, when all of the global leaders came out of the Davos meeting chanting, build back better, like zombies, like, how is that supposed to look? That just... That just seems like something out of a James Bond movie or the sequel to Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, I mean the supercuts of. That's funny to see who's fallen. Um, the part from the Build Back Better crew, yeah, like Governor Cuomo before he got kicked out of office. Yeah, the mayor of New York City, De Blasio, Trudeau, Biden, Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, uh, Macron all these people out there saying build back better, build back better. It's very creepy. That's why, like, mm. but there is like a, there has to be some level of coordination there. Right. Like I mean, these people aren't just randomly saying this in different yeah. parts of the world yeah. at the same time. And you had a build back I, better bill here in the United States. too. Right? Yes. The, the whole name. Yeah. What makes it, what makes it um, seem so powerful, and I guess it is so powerful, is that the mainstream corporate, what we call approved media here in Canada, is completely in line with it, and they cast so much influence over society. However, I'll qualify that and say, I think mainstream media is in secular de decline that will probably accelerate over the coming years. And um, I had another point, which I actually already lost the lost the plot on my other point. <laughs> it's just yeah. oh, it's gone. I'm gonna I'm gonna pour myself some coffee here. It'll come back to you. No, it's uh, yeah. it's 
been fascinating watching this all unravel. And I do think the corporate media is on a secular decline as well. And that's why I think I'm very excited to be speaking with you right now. I don't think I am very excited to be speaking with you right now because I think unassailable specifically, I haven't read the whole book, but I, the gist of it um, is really trying to empower individuals in this age of transition as we move from the industrial to the digital age and to basically create their own platforms, allow them to compete with the, the dying corporate media and get people out of the, the trance of being subjected to the, the propaganda, and the, the messaging that they just repeat and parrot um, on behalf of, of people with misaligned incentives. And I think the show is a great example of, of independent media that has emerged in the digital age. So I, obviously, we have Joe Rogan who's making um, a big stink and really putting a, a thorn into the eye of, of the corporate media. They don't like what he's doing and how he's conducting uh, his interviews and the information he's getting out to the public. And you know, it seems like there's a lot of volatility in the media space, particularly right now as we, as we move through this transition. Tell me about where what your outlet is. Like I started listening to your podcast, but I listened to it through my Apple podcast feed because I usually just do audio only, right? But I heard references that you your videos go up. Like you're not on YouTube, right? Uh, we're in YouTube timeout right now. We had a doctor come on the show okay. and, uh, in reference the VAERS database that, um, suggests that there may be adverse reactions to the vaccinations that are being forced upon people right now. And, uh, YouTube decided to put us in a two week timeout because of that. Um, yeah, we're trying to syndicate on Bitcoin TV, rumble, um, and anywhere we can. This is going on Twitter right now as well, but we, we hope to, blast it out to as many platforms as possible. Um, right now, we we host the podcast on Anchor, which is owned by Spotify, so that's pretty centralized, but there's plenty of um, other hosting providers that we could easily switch to if need be. Uh, and then on the written side of things, I think that's where we really have a good sovereign stack. We're actually building something right now that, that we think will compete with Substack. Um, basically, what we've done is taken Ghost cms and injected it with btc pay server um nice. and, and made it made it so we can self-host our our written content um and monetize via bitcoin in a non-custodial fashion as well right uh, yeah that sounds great because you know i i don't have any inside knowledge into substack i don't know who runs substack but when I hear independent journalists talk about, oh, I couldn't take the mainstream corporate gig anymore, so now I'm free, I'm over on Substack, I always kind of wince when I look at that, and I'm like, how long is Substack going to stay free? But not free as in no cost. I mean, like, how long is it going to be where Substack is perceived to be this refuge away from corporate you know, blinders and even censorship? When are they going to start taking people down for saying you're not allowed to say that on this platform? I just because it's another single point of failure, right? Everything is under yeah. Substack.com. <clears throat> I think Barry Weiss, who's one of the biggest contributors on Substack, she was on a podcast last week, and even she was opining it's when, not an if. They'll, they'll, the woke mob will eventually get to everybody. Um, and, she was seeking alternatives. Barry, if you're listening, we're, we're building one for you. But yeah, no, I agree. I think 
and I love it's just something I stumbled into ghost. I wanted a CMS to re syndicate, to syndicate my newsletter and have a one-stop shop for the newsletter, the podcast and other things that we do at this weird media brand that we have. Um, and we, we just chose ghost cause it was a nice, easy open source, uh, CMS that made it easy to self host. And then we started playing around by injecting it with BTC pay server. And then, on their end, they really turned it into a really good newsletter distribution um, mechanism as well. So we'll probably transition our newsletter to, to Ghost full-time as well. And then, yeah, it's just nice having our own site, tftc.io. That is ours. We control. And we can, we can we don't do it yet, but we plan on um, getting our own servers and hosting on our own servers. So we have complete control um, over everything that we do at TFTC. And then if you're referencing every different channel on that platform using like a handshake domain or something or any kind of uh, decentralized domain, then, um, you, you know, you're really cooking with gas there. Like as more and more people have these, we'll just call it Web3 enabled devices, just just uh, as a matter of course. So how do you view Web3? That's a big meme right now. It's one I've actually, I've, I've thrown a... Uh, Ire towards because I don't I don't think you need like a blockchain for Web three the DNS use case is intriguing uh, and there I've had many conversations behind the scenes of people who really highlight that DNS is very centralized part of the the internet and there needs to be a solution to um, to solving that um, but like Web three to me is like what we're doing at TFTC with the the content that you can self host on your own server. And you just inject it with BTC Pay Server, and you can pay ten cents in Sats um, to be delivered content from something that I control, uh, and, and you're basically leveraging Bitcoin, RSS feeds, and uh, more distributed hosting. Right? Does, does everything need to be a blockchain on that stack? Are you putting stuff on IPFS? No. Do you have an opinion on it? I haven't looked in IPFS in quite a while. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. I know. Impervious, um, they're coming out with a a browser, and and I know they hinted that they'll be leveraging IPFS a lot as well. It the browser's out. I have it on my phone. Um, I know a couple of those guys, and uh, um, yeah. So that that browser kind of excites me. Because I think what I my definition mentally of Web three may be different from everybody else's in the world because I don't think specifically of like Ethereum or DeFi or or DApps. Well, maybe to some extent DApps. I think Web three is anything that gives you visibility into a blockchain from your personal device. Right. If you've got a phone that can look at a blockchain, if you've got a web browser with a plugin that gives you visibility into a blockchain, in my mind. That gives that that's Web three. Um, I don't know how accurate or coherent that is for a lot of people, but that's just my sort of shorthand for how I think about it. And I and so what I think is going to happen is there's going to be more uptake. So that's like a network. The network edge is growing, right? And it's not like. You don't have to have this resolver stack on your computer that's that's walking down this inverted tree that's controlled by this centralized authority. I also think 
not meaning to geek out on DNS too much, but I've been waiting for a kind of decentralized explosion in resolvers to happen as well. Um, we see a little bit of the opposite right now, but I think it's going to go the other direction at some point because the incentives are there. And by that, so like there's a DNS server that just answers questions about a domain name, right? Like, uh, you know, where is example.com and the server will answer with an IP address. That's a DNS name server. A resolver is on the other side of that question answer dialogue. The resolver is something your ISP uses or your, your, um, your, your gateway at your company. And it's asking all these questions. Like I got a guy here who's looking for, you know, greatamericanmining.com. And then it's going to go out and find the answer. It's going to come back and give them the thing. That's what a resolver is. And I think what will happen over time is you can run a resolver on your own laptop, right? And I think that's going to start happening more and more. You can run a resolver on your iPhone. Because what's happening is large companies are forming like Google's 8.8.8.8 or Cloudflare 1.1.1.1. Like they're all providing this, hey, it's a free resolver service. But they're kind of data mining that. And eventually, they can even do traffic shaping with it. So if enough people are using their resolvers, then you have this other incentive to data mine it. And to I'm not saying that either of these companies are doing that. I'm just saying the potential is there. And um, the gateway is open to even shape traffic. So you can expect another sort of edge of the network to form around people starting their own independent resolvers. And if you do that, then you can say, look, I want my resolver to resolve handbrake or handshake domains and unstoppable domains and Ethereum name service domains. And then again, you're doing this end run around the ICANN route. I've never heard of a resolver before, so I'm just trying to conceptualize this in my mind. Like what needs to happen for your iPhone to be able to resolve something. So a, a, a DNS lookup has to have two sides to it. Someone's asking mm -hmm. a question and someone's answering the question, right? So answering the question, that's an authoritative name server. That's what easy DNS does and other companies like it, right? Uh, the resolver is like 1.1.1.1 or 8.8.8.8 or open DNS or quad nine, which is I think one of the better ones, uh, 9.9.9.9. They're answering all these questions. They put in this sort of value add that they say, look, we're going to block uh, known malware domains. We're going to block known phishing domains. We're going to put a security layer on that. And that can be beneficial for sure. But um, there's also, you're adding another single point of failure. You're adding another choke point. You're adding another gateway. Yeah. So as a DNS provider and somebody who runs a DNS company, like, are you, do you think you're going to get an immense amount of pressure, an overwhelming amount of pressure from, from governments at some point in the future that's going to force your hand in some instances? Don't mean to put you on the spot, but. I think about this all the time. I think about it a lot. And um, we have our own line. Um, you know, we've said no to certain companies and individuals who, who wanted to come on here. And we've just said, you know, it's just from a business risk perspective, it just doesn't make any, any sense for us. Um, 
And we've taken flack for that too. We've taken flack for saying no. But there are companies that we have that, um, you know, Zero Hedge is a client and Zero Hedge is being uh, touted in the media as being a Russian intelligence asset. So I kind of <laughs> had the conversation with my wife the other day. It's like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle the stress of this. I mean, we'll handle it. Like we're not taking down Zero Hedge ever, period, full stop. It's not going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, we I think about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't understand the gravity of like how centralized is the DNS space? How many competitors you have? Would you say? So it's one of those things, and I used to talk about this a lot on another podcast I had: protocols versus platforms, right? Mm-hmm. So platforms sort of build themselves on top of open protocols, and then they tend to get large to the point where they suck up all the oxygen in the space, right? So email is a protocol, okay? And anyone can stand up an email server and send email around. Gmail is a platform that soaks up a lot of oxygen out of the email space. And suddenly, if Google decides they don't like your mail server, they can just start throttling your traffic from your independent mail server. So DNS is the same way. Anyone can stand up an authoritative name server. The same thing that I was talking about that you can put a resolver on your laptop or, uh, or on your phone, you can, you can get a VPS for five bucks a month and put a name server on it. And those are your name servers. So there's nothing stopping you from doing that. But where I think that comes back to resolvers and it comes back to um, pressures like deplatforming and DOS attacks, like nowadays to operate a name server, you've got to have DDoS mitigation and things like that. Otherwise, at some point, you're just going to get hit, especially if you're running something that you that is taking a little bit of deplatform pressure that you want to get out of the way of. So it it's going to... It over time, it's been a battleground. It's faded a bit. I think it's going to come back and be a battleground. There was a, a really just one line out of an Obama speech back when he was still president, and I can't remember the news event that incited it, but he said something in it that I actually printed off the speech and underlined it. And he said, "You know, the danger of unauthorized name servers." And I couldn't believe that that came out of sitting president's mouth. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is scary, right? That there's a talk about dangers of unauthorized name servers. It's again, I don't mean to go on too much of a tangent, but like it's this pressure now up here in Canada, the Ontario Securities Commission is now reporting tweets to the RCMP about, you know, Brad Armstrong and the Kraken guy saying, you got to get your money off the exchange and go into a self-custody wallet. So it's the same tension everywhere, centralization versus decentralization. You know, you buy Bitcoin, you should be self-custodying and anybody can self-custody. But there's this pressure to centralize that. So you're not the custody and you're in an exchange where they can put their thumb on the exchange. For name servers, anyone can set up name servers. But there are these dynamics that are sort of pushing people to DNS providers and things like that. So, um. So far, you know, we've 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 held up over the years and we continue to thread the needle and fight the good fight. So I don't really expect 
like the zero hedge, for example, I don't think they'll ever come straight at us for zero hedge, but what they could do, and I've, you know, I've never made a secret of this. They can go to VeriSign. That's the inverted tree, right? So zerohedge.com. They can go to the people who run .com, VeriSign, and they can pull it straight out of the .com zone without us having anything to say about it. And that's happened. I mean, we've had, we'll get an email from VeriSign because we're a registrar. We're accredited under .com. We'll get an email from them that says, Pursuant to a sealed warrant, we've pulled this domain out of your out of your zone out of your account and out of the TLD zone. We can't tell you anything about it. Have a nice day. That's it. Stop. <laughs> now, in the past, those domains were like kind of dodgy pharma domains, like you know, people selling like morphine online off a website out of Russia. Like I can okay, so we didn't even know they were on the system, and it happens, but. You know, when does that mechanism get employed for, you know, talking about freedom, which is now an alt-right word up here in Canada? Who knows? What's it like being being a Canadian in Canada right now? Well, you know, Canada's always been a left-wing country, right? We've always been left of center um, with this sort of like, conservative countercurrent running through it. I don't even identify as a conservative, actually. I mean, I ran for the Libertarians in 2015. Um, you know, I think it's, I think uh, I, I like elements of both classical liberalism, like the free speech part of it and do whatever the hell you want with your life part of it. And then, you know, some elements of conservatism, which is like, you can't print money. You can't print your way to prosperity. Uh, which makes me a libertarian by default, which is a very lonely thing to be in Canada. And uh, but I think, I think it's turning. I really do feel like when this election cycle finally plays out, I don't think the Liberals or the NDPs will. I think they've they've basically kissed off the working class for a generation because there's a lot of rage. But it's a lot of unspoken rage because you can't speak up because you get canceled. You get called a racist. You get called ignorant and infantile just for saying, you know, how come my business has been locked down for two years and my kids are wearing masks at school and you guys are flying around on private jets with no masks, having parties and talking about how everybody else is going to live their life under this great reset. It's just I think there's a lot of unspoken ire about all that. Yeah. No, I mean, just being in the Bitcoin mining industry and speaking with a lot of Albertans and the oil and gas industry and how they've particularly been maligned over the last few decades specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, yeah it's a great shame. It's like hardworking class people and, and it's happening here in the United States too, but they're literally not even given the chance to live the life they want to live as oil men um, because these activities have been deemed too dangerous for society, despite the fact that oil and gas are completely necessary for our modern society. Um, it's yeah, it's, I know. It's I'm, I'm sure you're you're familiar with Doomberg, right? His piece, mm -hmm. like our energy policy is bonkers, right? Well, that's again, that's another thing. There's so yeah. many. I'm more. I'm easier to believe that they're. There was some weird conspiracy going on 
some some cabal of people because it seems like there's attempts at a controlled demolition and energy policy is part of that you know, energy is extremely important and what we've seen in the western world i mean you germany has electricity rates of 40 cent a kilowatt hour um uh, residentially and that's because they've phased out all their nuclear power plants and coal power plants for for wind and solar new york city just shut down its new nuclear power plant a couple of years after banning fracking in the state and manhattan uh electricity prices went from something like nine cents to 16 cents in the last year per kilowatt hour which is a significant rise um and you're seeing in canada with the, the inability to um extract as much oil as you potentially could we could all be energy independent but, but we refuse to be and then you have this green new deal coming here to the united states at least they're trying to bring it here that would destroy our energy sector and the reliability of our grids as well it seems like it's everywhere you turn whether it be covid energy great financial crisis and reaction to that they're they're just trying to create systemic weakness so that people are scared and they're more easily manipulated that's that's where my mind goes it's hard not to go there it really you know i'll admit that um yeah <laughs> Like, why isn't nuclear a bigger part of the conversation? Because right. that, that's like the, you know, I've always said, we're going to get off of fossil fuels if for no other reason that there isn't an inexhaustible supply of it, right? Like, we're going to run out someday. we got to get off of it. But, you know, why are we deliberately, intentionally forsaking even things like thorium or the new pebble bed generations of reactors that's like could could completely revolutionize the energy landscape and it's it's a not like it's outside of scope but I, that's changing a bit lately i think the uranium story um there's been some changes in england but going back like is it a cabal that's doing a controlled demolition it's it's one of those things for me where um it's just too big of a question to even ponder in the sense that if it's incompetence, is it conspiracy? Does it make a difference, right? In the outcome, it almost doesn't like the same, we're still on the same trajectory. I, but you know, I think we're heading and that probably could dovetail in with, with your thinking around this. I think we're headed for a kind of monetary apartheid, right? Where they're, you know, the outcomes, the big, the big impelling factor behind all of this is the debt. We're at this, the, we're finally, I think, hitting the end of this debt super cycle that we can't kick the can the way we have been for decades, right? And so something has to happen. And all of this other stuff could just be window dressing and veneer for how do we handle the end of the debt super cycle. And it could feel like a controlled demolition, right? Because you want people to be helpless. You want them to be completely reliant on the government. And that's the mindset of a centralized government. But I really do think that we are, I think there has been um, a secular shift or there is sec a secular shift occurring from a centralized, it's the centrali centralization versus decentralization, right? I think that is happening. The computer network changed it all. And so um, 
ultimately, I don't think it's going to succeed. But the near term is going to be pretty brutal. I mean, I was listening to your show with Alec Spesky. Mm -hmm. Did I get the print? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the clown show, right? The clown show continues. But I don't think the clown show can can I, I don't think it can actually sustain because the fundamental architecture of society has changed. So all of this great reset, green new deal, all of that are like linear extrapolations of industrial age mentalities and configurations. And and those days are over. They're ending and it's violent and it's turbulent and it's chaotic, but we're in a different architecture now. It's a networked decentralized architecture. So no matter how much, you know, seeming power and control and wealth, this paradigm has, it's an outgoing paradigm. It's just the game has changed. And so the people who controlled most of the levers of society, either institutionally or personally or dynastically, they aren't going to let it go easily. Like who want, who would want to, who would go easy into that good night unless you managed, unless you decided we're going to do a pivot and we're going to get with the program. But those are the exceptions rather than the rules. So I think long-term it's just, it's inevitable. I know you guys kind of frowned upon that idea in another one of your shows, but I still think of it that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I think the transition and the of power is underway. It is inevitable. And like you said, you just have this incumbent class of people that is so used to having power and they're clinging to it with, with death grips and, it would be interesting, like, and, and pivot. Here, if any of these people who are clinging to power are listening, I mean, pivot is your best option. Like, how do you want to be looked at uh, in the history books? It's something I think about. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're the people sitting there, you have to see the writing on the wall. You mentioned the debt crisis; it's mathematically impossible to revert that crisis to ever pay back the debt that we've accrued to ever make right on everything that has amounted over over the last century. It's just not going to happen. They know that. We know that. They know that we know that. We know that they know that we know that. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's, we're, the, we're at that point where it's like, we know that you know, that we know, that everything's fucked. We've got these, these decentralized networks in the internet, Bitcoin, uh, and things like BitTorrent and other networks throughout the world rising. People are liking them. They're providing more utility. They're uplifting people from poverty. They're opening access to information and wealth that was literally unfathomable only a century ago for, for humans around the world. Like you should pivot just, you know, it's the other thing too. It's like a weird tightrope that they have to walk. They, over time they should pivot and really let the stuff flourish and be remembered in history as people who, who recognize that the folly of, of the system that they had built and said, you know what? Yeah, we fucked up. We're, we're going to let this, this, this organic emergence, these emergent systems thrive because it, it does look like that it is giving people more opportunity, uh, more uh, equality, not equality of outcome, but just equality of access and opportunity. Um, and, and yeah, that's, I mean, but with that being said, they probably will never do that. There's something about hubris and um, 
and man's ego that that forces some of these people to go down with the ship. And well, the the question then is, is it really up to them, right? And I used to think it was, and lately, maybe up until a week or so ago, and I still actually, you know, I still believe it. It's not a, it's not really up to them. Like this is just happening. It's just that's just the way it's going. And I think this these extraordinary clampdowns on freedom are not a sign of their power. It's a sign of their weakness and their fear that um, they're really like, I think the whole system, this whole thing could turn to dust almost on a dime, right? The everything bubble could pop. Um, who the hell knows what's going to happen in the Ukraine? Uh, even that aside, uh, supply chains, energy, financial system. What happened in Canada the night Freeland announced, you know, we're going to seize your bank accounts, no due process, indemnify the banks. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. And all four big banks crashed that night. I don't know what happened there. I don't think, you know, I didn't really get any sense that it was a coordinated DOS attack or anything like that, but something happened, right? Something reacted to that statement. And, um, yeah, people were assuming it was a bank run, but do you think it was? Yeah. But it's like, who knows? You don't know, but something definitely happened. And one of the things I'm actually working on a blog post about this which I'll hopefully get up in a day or two. I generally find it futile to try and predict what's going to happen. Right. What I do is I kind of look at what can't sustain, like what can't, what are, what are our core assumptions? What are the linear extrapolations that are being made about the future that just can't hold up? And I find it more useful to think in those terms. And always to think in terms of probabilities or scenarios more than absolutes. But, um, you know, it's almost, uh, it's almost paralyzing to say, you know, to get involved in a, in a, in a mindset of like, this is what's going to happen in the future. Cause it's almost overwhelming enough to look at what's happening now and say like, this isn't going to continue to hold up, but I just do find it more useful to say, what are the what are the assumptions that can't hold or are unlikely to hold then you know what do i think is going to happen in the future or who's doing what or who's in control nobody's in control at the end of the day i think that's the reality well yeah and that's probably why we have this systemic fragility throughout the system because there are people who think they control these yeah. emerging complex systems and it's the technocratic so impulse right it's that that management by experts, don't worry, we've got this. We can micromanage. We know the exact rate of interest rates. We know the exact level of money supply that has to be in. And none of it's ever worked. I don't really understand where this conventional wisdom that it works comes from because it's just one long record of, of compounding failure. But here we are. And uh, another helicopter. <laughs> what I... What I do want, what I do worry about is when, like, I think the next, you know, exaggerated crisis will be climate and it's going to be, well, we can tune the climate. We just have to, you know, like climate lockdowns and, and complete energy rationing. 
which actually brings us to the Bitcoin energy thing, because I think that's that is a battle that we can't lose. Because once you see that, you know, somebody else has an authority to have a say on Bitcoin's energy usage, you basically said there's a, other people have authority over all energy usage, right? Why does it stop at Bitcoin? Why does why shouldn't it stop at, you know, whatever? Uh, keeping up with the Kardashians was, I think, you know, Alex Gladstein once said, or, or uh, you know, heated bathroom floors. Like, what are the things, you know, we're, what's going to be outlawed under pure communism, right? Yeah, no, and it's a fight that I'm on the front lines of these days. And, yeah. And I think we're going to win. I think these, these uh, hate to use the word, but synergies uh, between the energy sector and the Bitcoin mining industry are, are so profound, obvious, and game-changing that it would be a great shame to prevent that that relationship and that symbiotic relationship from from blossoming. And I do think that the Pandora's box has been open in the specific regard, uh, the integration of the energy sector and the Bitcoin mining sector, and, and there's no going back. I mean, you have executives at some of the biggest energy companies in the world, whether it be oil and gas, wind and solar, nuclear, hydroelectric, really seeing the results of implementing Bitcoin mining into their operational stack. And, and again, it's undeniably making them more efficient, making them more profitable, and, and giving them ways to be more reliable moving forward. And as humanity, that's exactly what we want. But I do agree, the climate change narrative is coming. I mean, they're, they're projecting uh, out of Davos that this is what they're going to transition to next. But again, it's like, all right, you, know, you fooled me once with the great financial crisis, fooled me twice with um, this this pandemic reaction and the lockdowns and everything that's ensued since March of 2020, and like to immediately transition uh, the same people and to try and lecture us about the the climate is I think I think they're going to have significant reduction in marginal returns on their ability to actually convince people to to go with the show. That that's why I think you know COVID, despite all the disruption, may may have that silver lining to it, that it really just exposed the veneer of like this is really all just kind of like societal wide gaslighting and BS, and you know I don't think people are going to buy it unless they like drop back ten yards and punt and like wait another decade before they try and roll out the whole climate hysteria thing. And I don't think the system as it is today has got a decade of gas left in the tank. No, it definitely doesn't. I don't think. I mean, you already have Klaus Schwab talking about uh, blotting out the sun. I mean, Bill Gates as well. <laughs> they wanted to do it. Weren't they going to like test it in Sweden or something a few years ago? Wasn't, and- that, wasn't that the sequel to Highlander? You remember yeah. that movie? But like this is, you know, this is another perfect example of the hubris of the the expert class what could, and what they think. What could they think possibly they could, go wrong? Yeah, right. Let's not think of any negative externalities of sending uh, sending dust into the atmosphere to blot out the sun. Uh, no way we could lose control of that and kill off most of the life on the planet. I mean, this happens. This is like that's the dynamic across all spectrum. Right, because the the central bankers are trying to do it with the economy, the technocrats are trying to do it with the climate and with with uh, social interactions, with lockdowns and social distancing, and it's just 
no one has really like you have all this ample evidence that it doesn't work right and no one really uh acknowledges it and it goes back i mean it's sort of the gist of even like austrian school economics which is non-interference like just let let the market sort it out is how it would hand happen in the in the economic realm and it would happen the same way in the human realm and even in the climate realm and everywhere that you know if um if human activity was really having an impact on something i think the externalities would create true price signals which would show that to everyone and you would fit like people would just figure it out one by one at a time that aggregates together into a real meaningful signal. I still believe that because I don't, I think all failures, all things that have been purported to be failures of markets or failures of capitalism are really just government policy and government interference failures. Every single one of them. Completely agree. I mean, I mean, again, we, we can't, I mean, we literally can't have good pricing signals in the markets no. right now because the money is all fucked. Like imagine, how much better the world will be once Bitcoin is widely adopted. We're on a Bitcoin stand and you actually have a accurate measurement of opportunity cost that affects capital allocation in ways that make humanity more efficient. You have quicker feedback loop cycles because you're getting quicker information about malinvestment um, and you just have capital being allocated to where it should be, where it's most effective, where it's most needed. Here, here's something I think about, though, and it's almost like the devil's advocate question, but I think about it a lot because, I mean, I'm totally all in on Bitcoin and I wrestle with will Bitcoin become the Bitcoin standard or is it just a phrase I've used is called Notgelt, which is a German term, which means emergency money during a time of hyperinflation, okay? So let's say a Bitcoin standard emerges and Bitcoin becomes the currency, the world global reserve currency. What happens if everyone, would, wouldn't everyone who holds Bitcoin not wanna spend the Bitcoin? Like you already see that today, people are like, well, I'd rather just borrow against it to buy something because I don't wanna sell my Bitcoin. Or is it a case that everything would reprice to a point where it takes a smaller and smaller number of sats to conduct your transactions, that that's the incentive to be using this as your currency? I think number one, right, push comes to shove. People need to eat. They need to have a roof over their heads. They, they want to go do things, so they will spend money if they have to. Number two, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, if the world does adopt a Bitcoin standard in the future, the, the increase in purchasing power won't be as profound as it has been in over the last 13 years since its launch. Um, it'll be more akin to, to a low interest rate. Um, you'll have the opportunity cost there. Uh, yeah, and then on top of that, like I, I, I'm still very interested to see how a Bitcoin standard plays out. Obviously, it's not here yet. And I'm always been fascinated with a December 30th, 2010 bitcointalk.org post by Hal Finney, in which he came out and essentially said that 
Bitcoin will get us back to a free banking system, um, which existed mm. in Canada, Scotland in the 18th and 19th century, I believe. And, and I, that, that has always made intuitive sense to me that uh, Bitcoin um, will enable this free banking system to emerge where you have private banks competing with each other. They use Bitcoin as reserves and have different um, different uh, offerings to their clients in terms of uh, interest rates and benefits and stuff like that. Uh, that um, that could make facilitate more um, more velocity of money at, at that secondary level above Bitcoin as a reserve currency below it. Um, yeah, no, I, I could see play in many ways. I mean, I see it right now. There's people listening to this podcast who are sending mm-hmm. us. Uh, I mean, this is. From another episode, I'll show you right now. Um, there's definitely people listening today. Yeah, literally ten minutes ago. There's people here sending me thirty nine, thirty eight, forty sats per minute. Right. Um, people spending it today. I get paid in Bitcoin um, for some of the advertisements on the show. I pay contractors in Bitcoin. I mean, people are spending Bitcoin every day, and there's still massive uh, upside potential. Yeah. I mean, I ask it like philosophically because I too, I mean, we've been taking Bitcoin payments at EasyDNS since 2013. And at the beginning, I thought, well, if Bitcoin really moons, all this will stop. But it never did. But what I did, of course, obviously, uh, the, the number of sats to register your domain name just dropped dramatically. And so in my mind, I thought that this is what makes sense here is that it's taking less and less sats to do this. But I do think you have all the shit coins, right? And I think aggression's law. And I think if a Bitcoin standard comes, everyone's going to have like, they're going to earn sats. They're going to use that as the bedrock of their financial standing. And then they're going to do, there's going to be like, most of your day-to-day transactions are probably going to happen in some kind of like altcoin, shitcoin, token, whatever, maybe multiples of them. No, cause then because then you have to play hot potato with those shitcoins, right? So like, yeah. Cause I mean, I was like, that's what people thought about Litecoin in the early days. You have silver to Bitcoin's gold. Like that's how it yeah. was marketed. Then you've had Dogecoin, stablecoin. And I think, yeah, I think what you have, a saturated market in terms of the amount of value that's been dumped in being orders of magnitude higher than what it is now. Uh, the spending will be, um, won't create too much of a, a mental cost for users thinking about the, the opportunity costs of increased purchasing power moving forward. I think 2030, 2040, at least decades from now, I don't think um, the the, the the sort of Bitcoin spending Bitcoin regret will will be as large as it is today. Mm. Yeah. And it's so easy to send via the Lightning Network. Like, again, like there's people sending me forty cents a minute right now. That's half a penny. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a pure peer to peer fashion. That's at least what I think. And then again, like so, you mentioned Gresham's law, but yeah, Gresham's law. Many would argue only has the ability to exist if you have no free market for money, right? Like it, the, the bad money drives out the good. So that's the bad money it would be fiat currencies driving out gold and silver as, as 
money um, because it's sort of mandated. And then the opposite of that is Thier's law, where the good drives out the bad, where you revert to a free market of money, which Bitcoin has allowed us to do. And then you know, people consolidate on the best. Um, and the good money will drive out the bad. Um, so people will be dumping. I mean, maybe I'm actually reversing it in my mind when I say bad money drive, because I, I know the original meaning of the word of Gresham's law, but I think it's not that it drives out that the bad money drives out the good. It's just the good money gets valued higher than the bad. So you're going to spend the bad on your day-to-day living expenses and keep the good for, you know, investments or whatever. But no matter what, I mean, I still think that, um, non-state money for me that's the key driver of it that's what changes everything that's what says um, okay the whole uh structure of civilization has changed i may not be able to look through the economics of it into the future as much as just understanding the incentives like okay so on this hand i've got this stuff that's printed out of thin air that loses 10, 20% of its value every year. And my government just announced that they will take this away from me with no due process or appeal. Or over here on this hand, you know, I've got this digital gold that no one can touch that's increasing in purchasing power every year. And I can like walk out of the country with a brain wallet and reaccess my wealth anywhere else in the world. Which would I rather have? Right. So. That's kind of a no-brainer. That's all I need to know right now. Yeah, yeah. Freedom money is is in vogue at the moment, which is a beautiful thing to see. And hopefully, it yeah. stays in vogue for quite a while. Is yeah. And so, how do you are you optimistic about the future? Is a question I've been asking a lot recently. Um, um I am. I I sometimes fear that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but. Um, I'd say at the beginning of the pandemic, I was in danger of being swept away by negativity and pessimism. And I just, but then the more I started thinking about it and, you know, doing a lot more um, research and, you know, even just like starting to uh, adapt more meditation practices and things like that, I just started to calm down and realize that uh, this too shall pass. Right. That uh, so overall, I'm I'm quite optimistic of the future. I think humanity is headed for the stars, a Star Trek society. I think that uh, I think transhumanism is a little bit of a, 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 a what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a wrong turn. Like I just uh, we don't have to get. That's a whole other show to talk about that. But I think like we've got eight billion supercomputers walking around on this planet. And we're developing the technology and the tools to unleash the potential of every single one of them. And uh, we don't have to create artificial intelligence. We don't have to create, you know, transhuman, upload your mind to the cloud. We got it all right here. We got the whole package. We got, like I said, 8 billion supercomputers walking around on the planet. And, uh, and, we ha- and technology is moving forward at a blinding speed, blinding in every avenue. So... Yeah, and I'm happy you brought that up because uh, we are both in agreement that the metaverse is a scam. Um, the- yeah, actually, I wrote an article called that. And, uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's another 
you know, if I did believe in Davos circle jerk conspiracies, that would be one of them to just say, let's just shove all the plebes into the metaverse so they don't take up any space in the real world and just leave them yeah, there. So put the useless eaters in the pod, put the goggles on them, have, yep. them, have them fight in the digital world. It's, yeah. yeah, it's been and, weird. And over Sorry. Go ahead. There you go. Well, just, you know, uh, in the Matrix, they were used as batteries, right? But, you know, the conspiracy theorists love this one, but it's real. It exists. The the Microsoft patent for humans mining crypto, right? So stick all the useless eaters into the pod and, and mine crypto off their brainwaves. And uh, <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, and like the metaverse, it's been a real shame to see. Just for me, it's not a shame. It's just like, eh. Like, why is this becoming like a large meme in the last year specifically? It, it, to me, it's just some weird forum nihilistic escapism that is a product of people not wanting to confront the, the hard problems in the real world. Whereas I see the hard problems in the real world as massive opportunities to, to make things better in meat space here. You know, like I have my child, my niece, my nephew, my family in here. It's like, why would I want to escape to this? digital goggle world away from them yeah being human my wife being flesh it's beautiful my wife writes romance suspense novels right she's working on her second one now and i've been pitching her on a story for after she, ever since she wrote her first one i said look because she loves like the whole jane austen which is like basically their love stories of forbidden love between classes right that's the mm -hmm. standard jane austen or charlotte bronte she does her modern take on it romance cyber thriller that kind of thing i said okay here it is one's in the metaverse one's in the real world they're forbidden love right you fall you know the 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 real world is where the elites live the the plebeians live in the metaverse and they uh, one from each falls they meet they fall in love it's forbidden love and then the twist at the end is the one you thought was in the metaverse is really in the real world and the one you thought in the real world is in the metaverse and, you know one of these I like days that. Be, yeah <laughs> i like that plot that's it that sounds like a good movie that you're uh, you're thinking of there um Mark, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you for, for answering my DM again. I said, for you freaks, I'm sitting down. I don't even think I introduced you. I'm sitting down uh, with Mark Leftovich, who's uh, the, you're the founder of EasyDNS, correct? Yeah, one of the co-founders, yeah. One of the co-founders. Then bombthrower.com is your blog that gets syndicated on yeah. Zero Hedge. Yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah, that's what I saw. I saw one of Mark's pieces on Bitcoin and the situation in Canada a couple of weeks ago um, on Zero Hedge. I read it. And that's one thing. You're an incredible writer. It was uh, As somebody oh, writes a daily you. newsletter, I was like, damn, I wish I could write this this eloquently. Um, <laughs> oh, so, yeah. I, I, you, the way you describe Bitcoin, too, it's very poetic and um, a lot of passion comes through in your writing. Um, so I was like, hey, I'd love to talk to this guy. I think... Um, uh, I think we need more people like you getting ideas like this out there. Like things are pretty chaotic right now, but we do have the tools and the facilities to to make the world a better place. Bitcoin obviously being one of the most important tools, um, which is why we have this podcast and do what we do here at TFTC. Well, it was great meeting you when you reached out to me on Twitter. I, you know, I said, "Oh, it's the real Marty Bent," because you know you get so many fake 
Bitcoin luminary <laughs> on Twitter. It's like, yeah, got to check how many followers does he has is really, and when, you know, when they start the conversation with like, how is your trading going today? It's like, oh, okay, this is the wrong guy. But uh, I love the work you're doing with Great American Mining. Like I told you, like I write the crypto capitalist letter and we actually, it's not pure Bitcoin, but I'm probably one of the first newsletters covering the Bitcoin stocks. And so I already knew you from your Fortress Technologies days. Oh God, what are they called now? I can never remember the new name. Cathedra. Cathedra. So Cathedra. you're going to make I'm at Cathedra now, um, and I, I'm no longer at Great American Mining, but uh, both companies. Oh, I see. So you're all thing. the way in Cathedra. Yes, yes. Okay. I sit on. Oh, I sit on the board, and I'm pretty involved with um, helping them facilitate uh, stuff in the mining industry, just from having been around for a while. Yeah, beautiful. So yeah, I've been following you doing that work since I launched the newsletter there, and uh, yeah, you're one of my favorite companies. So. It's great. Thank you. I think we've got uh, a lot of big things coming. So definitely awesome. keep a lookout for Cathedral's going to have a big 2022. I'm very excited. Uh, it's almost the end of February. I think we're going to have a very hot spring and summer. Uh, it should be very interesting to see where we end up at the end of this year. Great. All right, Mark. Um, we got to do this again. This is a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you for joining us. Where can people find out more about you? So easydns.com is my day job running there. Uh, bombthrower.com is the blog that, uh, you know, there's a mailing list there. You can get the Crypto Capitalist Manifesto. And then uh, um, the crypto, uh, if you go bombthrower.com slash trial, I think we've got a trial on for the crypto stock newsletter, if it's okay to say that. And yeah, that's it. I mean, that's I'm stunt pope on Twitter. And yeah, bomb thrower up. on getter. Yeah, at stuff hope <laughs> and bomb thrower on getter, because who knows when I'm gonna get tossed off of Twitter. So yeah, our our days are numbered, it seems. <laughs> uh, drink be merry for tomorrow we die, at least in Twitter. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, again, it was a pleasure. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, and I'll see you uh I'll see you on the internet. Yeah, are you gonna be you're obviously gonna be in Miami, I take it. Yeah, I'll be here. You're going to come down? Oh, yeah. Got it all booked. Okay. So, all right. That's good. I'll meet you in person in Miami, though. That'd be great. All right. Take care. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.